Let's turn now together to Romans chapter 9, and we will pick it up in verse 24. Romans 9, 24 to 26 will be our passage this morning. And when we talk about the good news of salvation, when we talk about the gospel, um, which Paul just summarized for us in Ephesians chapter 2 in our scripture reading, whenever we talk about the gospel, we tend to uh, try to summarize the good news in as brief a way as possible. And that's good and helpful. The Bible does that for us in certain places. There are certain verses like John 3.16 or Ephesians 2.8 and 9 or 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that really uh, summarize the, the essence of the good news, right? That Jesus died on the cross uh, in our place for our sin, for example. Or for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's helpful to have those summaries that you can just sort of um, bring out in prayer or in conversation where you can put very simply the heart of what we believe. Um, but there's also a little bit of a danger there if we, we pick one summary and that becomes the way that we always summarize the gospel, then we can begin to neglect some of the other truths about the gospel that are also important. We can kind of make a, a mental rut, if you will, uh, in our minds where we always say the gospel is God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sin. The good thing about a rut is that really puts in deep something that is true. The downside to a rut is you're missing all the other things, right? You're forgetting that also a part of the gospel is not only that our sins are forgiven, but that we've been reconciled to God. We've been adopted into his family. We become his children. We become new creations. We become his people. We have uh, peace with God. All those things are also essential, important elements of the gospel. And we don't want to neglect those even as we sort of get comfortable with one or two summaries of the gospel. And one of those truths, one of those themes of salvation that we often leave out, that we often neglect when we are trying to summarize the gospel for others or for ourselves, is a theme that runs all throughout the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and one that is at the heart, not only of the few verses we're focusing on in Romans 9 this morning, but of the whole chapter. And that is the theme of the blessing of being God's people. What does it mean to be God's people? What is important about being a part of the people of God? Well, in one sense, um, everyone belongs to God in the sense that God made us all. He made us all in his image. And so sometimes people say, well, you know, we're all children of God. And, and in that sense, that's true, that God made us all. We're all created in his image and likeness. But when the Bible talks about his children, God's children or God's people, it's not talking about all the people that God has made. It's specifically talking about those who have been brought into a saving relationship with God, who have been made a part of the people who have uh, been drawn to God, who trust God, who uh, walk with God by faith. And again, this is a significant theme all throughout the Bible. For example, all the way back in Exodus chapter 6, when God is about to rescue the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt, God says this to Moses. He says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, 
I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the burdens from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And then notice this. He says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So when God rescued the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt, He didn't just bring them out from slavery and then say, you're free. Go wherever you want. Do whatever you want. No, He rescued them to make them His. To bring them into a covenant. To bring them into fellowship and relationship with Him. So they would be His people and He would be their God. Later in the New Testament, in uh, in the Old Testament, I mean, one of the most significant promises in the Old Testament is the promise of the new covenant, which is promised in Jeremiah 31. And in verse 33 of Jeremiah 31, at the heart of this promise of the new covenant, God says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So belonging to God, being His people, is one of the highest privileges that God promises us anywhere in Scripture. In fact, one one last verse. At the climax of the whole Bible, at the very end in Revelation 21, when God is describing for us through the Apostle John, how things will be after Jesus returns and everything is made new and everything is made right. We hear this wonderful pronouncement where John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. So a significant part of what God has accomplished for us through the sending of His Son to die on the cross so that our sins would be forgiven is also to make it possible for us to belong to Him as His people. For us to be able to say, He's not just a God, He's not just the God, He's our God, He's my God. I belong to Him. I and His. I can call upon Him in prayer and say, Our Father, my Father, who are in heaven. So, how is it, here's the question, how is it that not only Jews who believe in the, believe in the Messiah get to be part of the people of God, but also Gentiles, non-Jews, get to be part of the people of God? That was a huge question in the New Testament. Uh, You see uh, the whole church wrestling with it in the book of Acts, for example, at the Jerusalem Council. Paul is going to address it here in Romans chapter 9. Most of what he's been saying in Romans 9 has been about the Jews. Paul's uh, brokenness over the fact that many of the Jews have not believed in the Messiah. And then wrestling for us with the fact that How do we make sense of the fact that so many of the Jews didn't believe in the Messiah? Was was God not faithful to keep His promises to them? And and Paul has shown us throughout Romans chapter 9 how God has remained faithful. How the way He worked with the Jews in Paul's day in the first century was the same way He worked with the Jews throughout the Old Testament. The fact that many of them did not believe was not a shocking surprise, although it was grievous to Paul and not to grieve us. 
But it was very similar to how the Jews had responded to God and His prophets all throughout the Old Testament. It's very similar to how God had worked with uh, Isaac and how He worked with Jacob and Esau and how He worked in the days of Pharaoh and Moses. And so most of it has been about, the fo- focused on, um, how God has worked with the Jews in the Old Testament and even now after the coming of Jesus the Messiah. But in verse 24, he takes a turn and says, this is not just true of the Jews, but it's also true of the Gentiles. So let me read for us verses 24 to 26 of Romans chapter 9. He's, uh, well, actually, let me start in verse 23. He has... God has done what he has done in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So what is Paul saying here? He mentions at the end of verse 23, these vessels of mercy, which have been prepared beforehand for glory. That's his way of talking about all those whom God has saved through um, his son, Jesus Christ. And They are vessels of mercy because they receive God's mercy. Remember earlier Paul said, uh, he quoted um, God himself in Exodus 33, where God said, I will show mercy to whom I'll show mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. And all of us who belong to Jesus, all of us who have been saved, we we have received God's mercy. The reason we're saved is not because of anything we have done, not because of anything special about us, but because of what God has done for us, the mercy that God has shown to us. And so he says, we're vessels of mercy that God has prepared beforehand for glory. And there he's essentially saying the same thing he said back in Romans 8, chapter 30, or excuse me, chapter 8, verse 30, where he said, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also Glorified. So those he foreknew, he predestined. Those who he predestined, he called to faith in Christ. Those who came to faith in Christ, he justified. He forgave their sin and counted them righteous in Christ. And those he justified, he glorified. Meaning that we get to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus when he returns. And that's the same thing he's talking about in verse 23. The vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. He's talking about the same thing. And he says here... That that God has done that not just for some from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. Now, of course, he's saved from some from among, from among the Jews, right? Paul himself was a Jew. All the apostles were Jews. Many of the first believers are Jews. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached the gospel, there were people gathered there from all over the world, but they were Jews who lived all over the world, who come to uh, Jerusalem for the feast, and they heard the gospel, and thousands of people were saved on that day. So there were many Jews who did believe, again, Paul and the other apostles among them, but not as many as we might have hoped or expected. But there were uh, Jews whom God called and continues to call even today. But Paul says he called not only those among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. 
And that has been one of the key themes of this whole letter, right? At the very beginning of Romans, what some call the thesis, or sort of the key statement of the whole book. In Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, or to the Gentile. And then in Romans chapter 3, he said, all are under sin, right? Both Jews and Gentiles. This is not just the Gentiles who are sinful. The Jews are under sin as well. And there is one way for all of us to be saved because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all who are justified, Paul says, are justified the same way through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so in Romans 3, 29 and 30, he says, Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised, that is the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith. So that's the good news that Paul's been writing about all through this letter, that God sent his Son into the world to die on the cross to save sinners from among the Jews and the Gentiles, so that everyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus has their sin forgiven, is reconciled to God, is adopted into his family, becomes a new creation, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us, and on and on and on. All those blessings God has promised is given to everyone who trusts in Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, that this is the heart of what we believe. This is the heart of what the Bible uh, is about. And this is uh, the thing that we seek to emphasize and share the most. And we hope that you will hear that message and turn and believe. But how is it that God is able and willing and desirous to save Not only the Jews, who of course were his special people in the Old Testament, but also the Gentiles. Where does that come from? How can God do that? Why does God do that? Well, Paul, uh, as he does throughout all of his writings, and particularly here in in Romans chapter 9, takes us to the Old Testament to explain how it is and why it is that God is able to save not only those from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. And he quotes here from the book of Hosea. I don't know when you were last in the book of Hosea, but you might remember the prophet Hosea as the prophet who was told by God to marry an unfaithful wife. And the reason he was told to marry an unfaithful wife is because Israel had been unfaithful to God. And one of the images used in the Bible to describe the relationship between God and his people is that of a marriage. You see it in Ephesians chapter 5 where um, he talks about how um, Christ gave up his life for his bride and uh, compares the relationship between a husband and a wife to the relationship between Christ and the church. We also see that in the Old Testament, again, particularly in Hosea, where Israel is in a covenant relationship with God, like a marriage. And so when Israel breaks covenant with God, that is is spiritual adultery. They are being unfaithful to their husband, so to speak. Israel is being unfaithful to God as is uh, breaking that covenant relationship. And so God says to Hosea, you take an unfaithful wife, and that's going to be a picture uh, for the people of 
of their unfaithfulness to me. And Hosea has children with this unfaithful wife, and they have some really interesting names. Uh, in Hosea chapter 1, verse 6, Hosea is told to name one of his children No Mercy. And in Hosea chapter 1, verse 9, he's told to name another one of his children Not My People. Now, why is he told to name them that? Well, Hosea 1 9, the whole, the whole verse says, The Lord said to Hosea, Call his name Not My People. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Now, having just heard how significant it is to be a part of the people of God, for God to say to Hosea, I want you to name your son, not my people. And the reason why is because Israel is not my people, and I am not your God. That is a devastating pronouncement for Israel. And it's, God does not make that pronouncement because God um, is not keeping his end of the covenant. No, it's because Israel has broken her side of the covenant and she has breached and broken that relationship with God. And so God says, you're not my people anymore. I'm not your God anymore. You have turned to other gods the way he describes it in Hosea is you, you've turned to other lovers. Your, your idols are like other husbands that you have turned to in your unfaithfulness. And so God says, uh, no, more, no mercy from me. You're not my people, and I'm not your God. But then Paul quotes for us in verse 25 a passage from Hosea, later in Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, where God says, those who were not my people... I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. It's a little bit different uh, if you read it in Hosea, Hosea 2.23. The differences are not significant. But he says, I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So, God goes from saying to the nation of Israel, you're not my people, and I will not show you mercy, I am not your God, to saying, I will say again, I will have mercy on you, you will be my people, and you will call me once again your God. He quotes a similar passage in verse 26, this one's from Hosea chapter 1, verse 10, so right after verse 9 where he says, Call your son not my people because you're not my people. God says, uh, and in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So what is going on there? Why is Paul quoting this here? Why is Paul saying, you know how we know that God is calling people from the Gentiles to be saved, to be part of his people? Because of what God said to Israel in Hosea 1 and 2, where he said, you're not my people, no mercy from me. But at some point I will say to you again, you are my people, you have received mercy, and you will once again call me your God. What does that have to do with God calling the Gentiles? Because if you read Hosea 1 and 2, and we've just sort of barely scratched the surface. If you read Hosea 1 and 2, it appears to be all about the Jews. 
So how does this apply to the Gentiles? How does this apply to you and me? How does this have anything to do with God saving us? With God calling people from the Gentiles? Well, think about it like this. What happens when God says to Israel, you're not my people? What's the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles if God says to the nation of Israel, you're not my people? There's no difference anymore, right? No mercy from me. Essentially, what God is saying to them is, I'm going to treat you now like all the other nations. No more special privileges for you. You've broken the covenant. What set you apart from the other nations was your relationship with me. It was not anything special about you. God reminds them of that in, in Deuteronomy. I didn't call you to be my people because you were more righteous than the other nations or more numerous than the other nations. It wasn't anything special about you. That's not why I called you. I called you because I loved you. I called you because I was keeping promises to Abraham and to your fathers. So when you break the covenant, when you break your relationship with me, you're no longer any different than the Gentiles. But then God says to the nation of Israel again, now you are my people. And I am your God. And I am going to show you mercy. So what's he doing there? He's essentially calling a Gentile nation now to be his people again. So Paul's point seems to be, if God can say to Israel, you're not my people. And then say, at some point in the future, you are my people again. Why can't he say to Gentiles, you are my people. I'm going to show mercy on you. I'm going to save you. You're going to be part of my nation. We can even go further back and say, what about Abraham? Was Abraham a Jew when God called him? There was no such thing. There was just the nations. Everybody who had been scattered out from Babel. Different languages and different peoples now. And God called Abraham and said, you leave your family and you go where I tell you to go and I'll tell you what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. And through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. So not only all the way back with Abraham was God able to call somebody who was not a Jew and make them his, make them part of his people. But in that initial promise, there was the promise that through Abraham's family, through the nation of Israel, that God would bless uh, bless all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth. In fact, Hosea even makes reference to that promise. In Hosea chapter 1 verse 10, Paul doesn't quote this part, but the first part of Hosea 1.10 says, even though he's just said, you're not my people, He says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. What is that? That's a reference to the promises. God's saying, I'm going to keep the promises I made to Abraham. Even though right now you're not my people, I'm still going to be faithful to those promises to Abraham. I'm still going to bless you. And I'm still going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. And Paul takes those 
quotes and those promises and brings them into Romans 9 and he says, this is how we know that God can call people even from among the Gentiles. The reason why he can do that, the reason why it's not problematic that many of the Jews have rejected the Messiah, but many of the Gentiles have believed in him, is because this is in accord with how God has always worked, and it's in accord with God's earliest promises. What made Israel special was not anything about Israel. It was that God had called them and set them apart. And if God could call Abraham before there was anything special about him, and if God could call the nation of Israel to be his people, even after he said to them, you're not my people anymore, then why can't God look at a Gentile and say, you are now part of my people? I have called you to faith in my son, And because you belong to Him, because you trust Him, you are now mine. God can do that, can't He? Why couldn't He? A a verse that many of us are familiar with, but may not have ever thought about quite in this context before, and I had not thought about in this context before until somebody else made the connection for me, is something John the Baptist said. Remember when John the Baptist was baptizing people at the Jordan River? And he said to them, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What does that mean? It means God can call anybody he wants to be a child of Abraham. That's what Romans 9 has been about, right? It was not Ishmael who was counted as the child of promise, but Isaac. It's not Esau who is counted as the child of promise, but Jacob. God told Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. God tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this purpose, to show my power in you. He's got vessels of wrath, he's got vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. And why can't they be from the Jews and the Gentiles? They can, and they are. What that reminds us is that what makes us God's people is not something that we have done. It's not where we come from or who we come from or anything significant about us. What makes us God's people is that God has called us, that God has showered His mercy upon us, that God has shown grace to us. Remember that first part of Ephesians chapter 2 that we read? Paul says, all of us, we were dead in our sin, following the world, following the prince of the power of the air. We were all by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. So what happened? What makes us different now? He doesn't say, but you. But you started going to church, but you started reading the Bible, but you started this, you started praying. No. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us made us alive together with Christ. God says to the nation of Israel in Ezekiel 16, um, I saw you. In, in, In graphic terms, He says, I saw you on the day that you were born 
and you were abandoned, and nobody cared for you, and nobody loved you, but I said to you, live. I made you mine. That's what God has done for us. And so he warns us later in chapter 11, he warns the Gentiles, people like you and me who are not Jews, who've been made a part of the people of God, even though many of the Jews have been excluded. He warns us and he says, don't be arrogant. Don't be arrogant toward the branches who have been cut off. Don't think there's something special about me. That's why God included me. And these Jews who haven't believed there's something wrong with them. And that's why he says, no, 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 no. You stand fast by faith. And those branches that have been broken off, those Jews who have not believed, if they believe, they'll be grafted back in too. And it'll be easier to graft them back in because you're a wild olive shoot, but they were part of the tree originally. Don't the, the Jews should not presume on their ancestry from Abraham, but we ought not to be presumptuous either, thinking that there's something different about us that is the reason why we are included, why we are in. No, it's just God's mercy. It's just God's love. It's just God's grace. And because of that, we get to be counted as his people. We get to belong to his family. We get to be welcomed in to his presence. And that's what Paul emphasizes in the second half of Ephesians chapter 2. And this is how I'll finish. Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 